realistically the uh, the book of James and it's been a good run and for those of you who came to hear Cody preach this morning I apologize um, uh, I had a couple of people say we'll be back next week that's perfectly fine uh, if you're here checking out a church you always want to hear the pastor preach and not some guy who's subbing uh, you know for whatever reason so uh, do come back do hear Cody uh, do check him out online we're on uh, YouTube I believe it is is where you'll find our most recent stuff and so you can hear uh, Cody preach and hear how he walks through God's word and uh, you'll want to go back and do that so uh, as we look at the conclusion of the book of James here that these two verses which he read which are kind of the very end um, uh, really drive home two things one is that the struggle is real. Okay, so all of these things that, that Cody has talked about for all of these weeks, all of the things where he's encouraged them and exhorted them and pursued them a little bit, uh, that's a real struggle. It's not just real in a church 2,000 years ago or in Christianity 2,000 years ago. These are things that we struggle with today, and, and it's as real for us as it was real for them. And secondly, I think these verses uh, really highlight for us as we end here that God created the church. He created community because the struggle is real. Okay, and uh, he starts in verse 19 there. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth. And the word translated here, wonder here, it's, it's an interesting word. James actually used this word back in chapter 1 in verse 16, uh, only it's translated there as deceived. Okay, and uh, the noun of this verb uh, comes from a, the Greek word planetes, which you only need to remember that because it's, it's where we get our word planet from because as when we were when we were young before we realized that there that we lived on a planet before we realized that there were other planets before we realized that we were part of a solar system that was going around with a star in the middle uh, ancient people they looked up at the sky and they would they would see the stars at night and they could see all of the stars and those stars even though they kind of rotated seasonally through summer uh, and, 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 and winter rotated around there. They, they noticed that there were some odd lights that would appear just kind of occasionally. There were a low over here, and then it would move funny, and then it would, another one would disappear over here, and there were different colors. And, and so they called these stars planetes, the wanderers, because they couldn't be counted on to hold their position. In fact, they assumed that there was this evil cosmic force at work Causing these stars not to do what all the other stars did because the other stars held their place. And so when you looked up and you saw the Big Dipper, every year the Big Dipper looked exactly the same. And the Little Dipper and Orion and all these constellations, they were fixed in a fixed place that they could go and they could recognize. And they were what they were supposed to be except for these wandering lights, these wandering stars. Um, the, the verb then for this word that we use as planet, um, it, it, it means to stray or to wonder. And that's what it's translated in this verse, in verse 19. Uh, and the implication that something evil is involved, something wrong is involved, has stayed with the word as, as it's here in our text. Uh, and so it also came to mean dece deceived or led astray. Um, 
Now, James started this letter by encouraging us not to be deceived. And, and that was in, in uh, he uses the word deceived in verse 16 and then in verse 22 and then in verse 26. And the interesting thing there is he uses this word in verse 16 and in verse 22, he uses a word in the root idea in verse 22 for that word we translate as deceived is, is, is false logic. It's false thinking. It's an irrational line of thought. And then the one in verse 26 is even a, a third word there, which has as its root meaning the word cheat. Uh, because it, it doesn't matter how we get deceived. It doesn't matter if it's an evil influence in our life or if it's our own self-deception or if it's someone else that's led us astray. If we get deceived, we wander from the truth. And so James launches hard in chapter 1 and he said, don't get deceived. Don't get deceived. And so what does James mean by wandering from the truth? Well, it's really all of these things that Cody's been talking about as we've gone along and being double-minded and being hearers of the word and not doers. It's, it's thinking that we're religious if our tongue is out of control and we're just saying it's showing favoritism to people that we think can help us. It's, it's seeing people in need around us and not doing anything when we have the means maybe to do something for them. Uh, it, it's cursing people who are made in God's image uh, and, and speaking evil of them. It's trusting in worldly wisdom instead of divine wisdom. It's fighting a amongst ourselves. It's loving and trusting money more than we love and trust God. And, 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 and based on what Cody was preaching last week out of, this, out of chapter 5 here with, with uh, uh, taking care of each other and confessing our sins and praying for one another and this verse here where it talks about bringing other people back, we have to add to this list that we, we should uh, take care of each other. You know, the New Testament makes this connection between spiritual wandering and evil influence as well. I mean, it's, it's just kind of straight out in, in the New Testament as we look at that. And James, James jumped in the middle of it in chapter 3 in verses 14 and 15. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That's not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly and it's unspiritual and it's demonic, he says. Uh, the struggle is real, guys. And if we're honest with each other, uh, we wonder at times. We don't stay on the truth all the time. We wonder. It's like Isaiah says in, in, in chapter 53. He says, like sheep, we have all gone astray. We've all wondered. We've all missed the mark there. And we have, we know, as the New Testament teaches us, we know that there is a cosmic evil power out there. We know that there is a force that wants us to move away from God that's encouraging that. At any point, he can get his foot in the door in our lives. And so James' advice is practical and it's challenging because it's, it's real in our lives. We know what James is talking about. We feel that gravity to move away from God. It's there. And the truth that James is referring to is really the, is the truth of the gospel, uh, the, a life that's patterned after Jesus Christ. Guys, that's what we're striving for. That's really what it's all about. We, and we don't, we don't make it perfectly. And in that sense, we are always hypocritical. We're always aiming to be like Christ, but we're never perfectly there. But, but James says we should ask for wisdom from God and we should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. And we should do what God tells us when he tells us to do it. And we should look after orphans and, windows and widows and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And we should, uh, our, our works, what we do should match what we say that we believe. And we should watch our tongue and we should be humble and we should submit to God. We should include God in our planning. And as I've already pointed out, folks, we should look after each other. And that's the heart of the truth that James is emphasizing when he talks about walking away the truth. 
And look at verse 19 again. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. It's interesting because the word anyone there in that text and the word someone are exactly the same word. They're exactly the same word. And so if we were going to be legalistic about our English translation here, we would make it read, if, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and if anyone among you brings him back. Uh, the challenge is completely open. Any one of us is subject to wondering and any one of us could be the person who turns that person back to where they need to be. So this ties to what Cody was saying last week about prayer, where we confess our sins to one another. And guys, we don't do a whole lot of that. Let me just say that out loud. And to pray for one another. And even Elijah in the text last week, even Elijah in the text last week, and you think about it, it's talking about his prayer life, but what, why was he praying that the rain would stop and stop for three and a half years? And why did Elijah pray that the rain would come back? What was he doing on Mount Carmel to call down fire from heaven? He was there trying to turn back the hearts of Israel who had wandered away and strayed toward Baal. You know, James, James has covered the dangers of the tongue. But folks, there's a ministry of the tongue as well. And so when our hearts get redeemed, our tongues need to get redeemed as well. And we should be encouraging one another and speaking the truth and love to each other and praying for one another. And these are all things, guys, that the Scripture commands. They're not suggestions. They're not saying, hey, this would be a good idea if you did this. This would be like icing on the cake. It's commanded so that if one of us is poor or sick or needy or wondering from the truth, there is someone there to bring each other, to bring one back, and we're there for each other. Now, uh, this kind of community is not going to happen, guys, while we're sitting in here on Sunday morning. And, and, and Gary brought this up in our, our group meeting on Wednesday night. I said, man, you just stole a paragraph out of, out of, my, out of my message on Sunday morning. This is a teaching environment. Okay? This is not an environment where we're getting to know each other deeply. This is not the place where we're going to be involved in each other's lives. This is not the place where we're going to find out really what it is that, where I need to pray uh, for you specifically. Um, but we have groups here at Redeemer called Gospel Community. And, and these are designed to help us build relationships with each other and hopefully build relationships with people who are not part of the family of God yet. Uh, and this is a place where we can encourage one another. And we have a, another layer of groups, of smaller groups designed to help us with this, what James teaches here in verse 19, which is accountability. And again, that's another word that we're really not very, very fond of. And we call these grow groups, okay? Uh, because they're more focused on our relationship with the Lord. And these are groups where, where it's safe because you know these people in this group and, and you know that they know you and you love them and you know that they love you. It's, it's a safe place to speak the truth in love to them because that can only happen in a safe space. And that the people who know what is going on in my life are the only people who are going to be able to say something to me if I start to wonder from the truth and have any, have any effect and turn me back. You know, this morning I was, I was getting ready and I asked my wife, what shirt should I wear? And she said, you can wear whatever shirt you want. She said, Cody wears a lot of different kinds of shirts. You can just wear whatever shirt you want. So I picked my favorite shirt and I put it on. And she said, you can't wear that shirt. 
And I said, why not? She said, well, there's a hole in the back. And I said, well, they'll be looking at the front. But the truth is, is that we all need people in our lives who are concerned about the things that don't bother us about ourselves. We all need people in our lives who see the things that we don't see about ourselves. And my wife loves to be that person for me. And I love for my wife to be that person. So let's look at these verses again. He says, my brother, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Will save his soul from death. So I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to park there for a little while because if there's anything in this passage where somebody says, what does that mean? That, that's probably the place where we want to talk about. And, and James has already talked about spiritual death. He did that again in chapter 1. He says, you know, when we have desire or, or that gets out of bounds, that leads to sin, and sin when it, when it executes its final work, when it comes to blossom, when it gives birth, whatever analogy you want to use there, when sin produces its final work, he says that's death. And James is talking about spiritual death. Um, spiritual death is real. And everybody outside of Christ, outside of faith in Christ, is spiritually dead. Which means to say that that part of their life that God created them, that part of his image that's inside of them, where he wants to have a relationship with them, has not blossomed. It has not come to life yet. And that's a black and white thing. There's no middle ground in that. You know, there's a scene in the movie The Princess Bride where Billy Crystal plays the court magician, and he's Miracle Max. And they bring in the hero, and the hero is, has, has been slain early in the movie, which is really odd. And so they, they bring him in, he looks at him, and he, he examines him, and he says, oh, no. He says, he's not dead. He's just mostly dead. And so he brings out the magic pill and gives him this, this magic pill, which is going to bring him fully back to life again coated in chocolate to make it go down easier. And, 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 and then the, the hero comes back to life and he saves the princess and, and all is good at the end of the book and in the movie. Uh, and I, I think we would like sometimes to picture our life without Christ as something like this. We're, we're mostly dead, but because we're not completely evil, because, because we, we manage to do some good things in our mind, we picture ourselves that there, there's still a spark of life inside of us. There's still something in there that, where there is hope, where we can kind of turn the corner and become what we should become and do what we should become. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The biblical truth is that without Christ, we are spiritually dead. That means our relationship with God is completely broken. And I don't think verse 20 is talking about spiritual death, okay? So I say all that to say, I don't think we're talking about spiritual death. Because I, while there are other views out there, to me, Scripture seems to pretty clearly teach that we don't, we don't lose our salvation. Once God has done this work in our life, okay, once he has a, a, adopted us so that we become children of God, he doesn't unadopt us. He doesn't decide, no, this one's not worthy. We'll make them an orphan again. And after he, 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 we've been given, as it says in Ephesians 1 there, the Holy Spirit, and, and it says in Ephesians 1 there, it says that he gives us as a, a good faith down payment on the salvation, the complete salvation that we'll have when we're with him in glory. And the word that's used there is, is the word earnest. 
as in earnest money. We don't do much of this anymore. It's kind of an older idea. But earnest money is money that you put down, you put up as a deposit. It's a non-refundable deposit so that when you put that up, if you don't go through with the deal, you lose the deposit. It's money you put in place to guarantee that you're going to come through with the rest of the money, the rest of the deal. But if you don't, you lose that deposit. And that's the literal word there in Ephesians 1 where it talks about this deposit that God has given us of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I don't believe that, that Scripture teaches that we're going to lose our salvation even though we don't become perfect. Now, if you remember here, you had access to, and I hope that you read it, the Redeemer Belief Statement. And let me just read it. Let me just quote it for you. It says that the believer's ultimate confidence to persevere, that means to continue on in the faith, okay, in salvation, the, the believer's ultimate confidence to persevere is based in the sure promise of God to preserve his people until the end, which is most certain. Which basically, in a simple way, means that we believe that, that our salvation is secured by God and not by us, okay? We, we never have had the ability to secure our salvation. We don't suddenly have the ability to secure our salvation after we become a Christian. God takes care of that. So what does James mean then by saying that, that, that someone is saved from death when he talks about bringing back somebody who wanders away? Okay, that's the big question that's on the board here. So let me just take us back to the book of Acts for just a moment. And James, who, who wrote this epistle, we believe is the same James who is the leader in the, in the book of Acts as the church in Jerusalem, okay? Also, we believe to be the same person who is the, the younger half-brother of Jesus himself, all right, so in, in, in Acts 4 and 5, I'm just going to read a little bit of that, the end of 4, the last couple of verses, and end of 5, just a little bit, and, and uh, talk about that for a second. So thus Joseph, uh, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Just make a note of that for what we're talking about today, son of encouragement. He, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field. That belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was great physical need, great financial need in the early church. And so this guy had a field. He sold the field, and he brought the money to the church so that they could have, use it to meet people's needs. All right? Now, into chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And while it remains unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And then three hours later, the same thing happened to his wife. Now, now keep in mind that James, James was in Jerusalem when this happened. I, we don't know that he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem yet, but he may have been in the room Standing there when Peter confronts Ananias, he may have with his own eyes seen Ananias breathe his last breath and fall to the ground. And notice that Ananias and his wife, they've wandered far from the truth or hoping to lie about the reality of what they're sacrificing in their personal lives in order to, to help the people in the church so that the people in church would be as impressed with them as they obviously were with Barnabas 
and his sacrifice. And, and notice that Peter connects this lie with an evil influence. He says Satan has filled their heart with the wrong thing. And so here we have physical death resulting from sin. Now, let's flip over if you're following me in your, in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians. Okay, so Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And uh, uh, he's writing to them about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. Um, he says, now when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he, 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 he repeats to them what he taught them. This is what Jesus said that night. This is what he did. He took the bread. He took the wine, the actual instructions. So down in verse 27 then, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself and that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died now paul starts out with a pretty strong rebuke here he says it was not actually the lord's supper that they were celebrating because they had wandered too far away from the truth now, they celebrated in a way that was kind of reflective of what Jesus did. I mean, they were having a big meal. And, and, and of course, Jesus instituted this, this Last Supper. He instituted communion at the Passover, which was probably the largest meal in the year for the Jewish people. It was a huge meal. It was a big celebration. And so when they're having the big meal, they were having the big celebration. But it was, they were doing it kind of like a potluck. They say, all right, everybody bring your own food. But instead of sharing commonly or communally what everybody brought, each person brought their food and then they ate their own food. Now, most of the early church was poor, folks. They were poor. And in fact, in every church in the New Testament, there was a large number of people who were actually slaves who were a member of that church. Um, and so when each person is supposed to bring their own food to celebrate, there's automatically going to be this wide gap in what shows up because there were some rich people in all of these congregations as well. And if a slave were to bring food from their master's house, technically that would even be stealing. So they had nothing to bring to this. And so just kind of a, as, as a, a modern-day illustration, if, if we as a, as a group were to say, you know what, we want to we have a meal, and we're going to celebrate what the Lord has done, and we're going to invite uh, the folks from Faith Mission across the street here behind us, and we're going to invite all of these homeless people to come over here, and we're going to have a meal, and we're just going to say, hey, everybody bring your own food, and we're going to show up and, and eat our own food, and we're going to have this big table and have a big party. Can you imagine what that would look like when all these people showed up and they didn't have anything to bring with them for that. And they, and they sat down to eat, and somewhere during the course of the meal or, or toward the end of the meal, they would take uh, the wine that they had brought, and they would take some of the bread that they had brought for the food, and they would actually celebrate them in the way that, that Paul gave them instructions, and they would use the wine to represent the blood and, and the bread to represent the broken body of Christ. But there were people sitting there who, who didn't have anything to bring, and they ended up just sitting there watching other people celebrate the Lord's Supper. In fact, uh, he said that they, they had ate and, and ate and celebrated so much during the meal that some of them were drunk 
by the end of that time when they got to the point where they were supposed to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Paul says this was humiliating for those who were poor. And, and keep in mind what, what James has said in this book about favoritism where, where he says don't, don't, when someone comes in and it looks like they, they have things and they look rich, don't, don't invite them into the front and, and have a chair and put them in a place of honor. And then when someone comes in and they're poor, tell them, oh, just go, go sit in the back there somewhere. Uh, I mean, there's an overlap in what we see in Corinth and what we see in the book of James of how the church was trying to navigate some of these problems between people who had things in a culture where there's no middle class. You have people who have stuff and have a lot of stuff and then people who have nothing. And the church is trying to navigate that piece. And we see that in, in James as well when he's talking about favoritism. So the church in Corinth had wandered away from a genuine celebration of the Lord's Supper or communion, as we call it. Something that was designed to, to show unity and bring unity into the church was actually, was actually doing the opposite. In verse 27, Paul says that they were celebrating in an unworthy manner. Unworthy manner. And the focus of Paul's attention was on how they were doing this. What they were doing, the mechanics of it. So was, was God glorified by what they did? No. Did it unify the church there in Corinth? No, it didn't. Did it provide an example of the gospel that people could see the witness of the gospel? No, it didn't. And so Paul said that, that what they were actually doing was not the Lord's Supper. And he gave some instructions to end his thought. And I want to I dig in here a little bit for us because we, we celebrate communion every week here at Redeemer. So there's a point, if you're, if you're, if you're visiting here today, uh, we're going to celebrate communion. And, and if I forget to say this in a little bit, if you're a believer, uh, we're going to invite you to participate with us, okay? Um, uh, and, uh, but he says, he gives three thoughts here. He says, first of all, let a person examine himself. Am I in right relationship with the Lord? Is there something, some, some sin that I, I, I've really been unwilling to deal with in my life and, and, and that I need to, to get squared away and confess to the Lord and maybe, maybe even confess to somebody else because it's out of control in my life? Am I in a right relationship with my brothers and sisters who are here this morning? Uh, he says, secondly, don't eat without discerning the body. And that means really knowing and understanding the body of Christ you know, a lot of what the New Testament teaches, a lot of the ideas about the body of Christ, we find in Paul's letters in First and Second Corinthians because he had to tell them because they just didn't get it. Uh, and thirdly, he's, Paul says that God does discipline believers who wander a long ways off from the truth. Um, like they did with communion here in First Corinthians. Uh, as a result, he says to them in verse 30 that some of them among their group, some were, some were weak and some were ill. And he said, some of them had died because of that. And so this is why I believe here in James, at the end of James, that James is talking about physical death because he's talking about believers who have wandered from the truth and they need to be brought back. They didn't lose their salvation from this wandering because when we look globally that the big picture of the New Testament, we don't believe it teaches that. But they did get disciplined by losing some of the years of their life. Their lives were cut short. Now I want to come back and say some more things about communion because again we do celebrate communion each week and I don't want to leave anything on the table that might cause some unrest or some, some confusion for some folks. Now we, we fence communion. We put a, a restriction around communion in two ways. 
And, and the first is, you know, Cody weekly asks people who are in attendance on Sunday to abstain from partaking if, if you're not a believer in Christ. And that's simply because we see this as a celebration of the salvation that God has brought into our hearts. And, and you can't genuinely celebrate something that hasn't happened yet in your life. And secondly, we see it as a proclamation of the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus really did die for our sins and that his broken body and his shed blood actually had some cosmic effect. We, we share that truth with that as well. And, and you can't proclaim that truth if, that, if you haven't believed that truth yet. But let me just say that the judgment that we've been talking about and the discipline that the Lord brought down on the church in Corinth, that was on believers, that was on people who should have known better, who should have been following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And this is, he was not talking about people who were exploring faith in Christ. This is God judging his people. So if you're here today and you're checking out church, and by that I mean checking out faith in Christ, uh, then this, this, really, this part of my message may seem a little harsh to you. Um, the idea that God could move someone to heaven earlier than their natural lifespan, it may seem like I'm saying that God is unloving or uncaring in that respect. But, but let me just say that as a parent. Now, let me just say that as a child, okay? Um, because my kids were better kids than I was growing up. Let me just say that as a child, I was the kid who was climbing the curtains in the back of the room and uh, the, the child that everybody was saying Maybe his parents should have more control over him. Uh, and there was more than one event, more than one evening, more than one thing that, that we were at where we had to leave earlier than planned because my behavior was not appropriate. And it's not because my parents didn't love me. It's because my parents loved me that they did that. We get super focused on these 80 some odd years that we have on this side of eternity. But guys, God is way more concerned about eternity than he is this earthly life. Now, the second way that we fence communion is when we ask believers to examine themselves. Are you fully prepared to celebrate this morning? And we will celebrate this morning. Uh, is your heart right with the Lord? Is there, is there something that you might want to confess to him, to do business with him about? Are you in good relationship with your spouse this morning if you're married or some other believer uh, who is here? Um, are you focused on gratitude for what Christ has done for us? Because as a believer, we would ask you, if your heart is not in the right place, we would ask you to abstain from communion this morning. Simply to honor what God has done. And, and uh, before I move on, let me just kind of undress, address, not undress. Let me address the unspoken question that's in the room today. Uh, is it possible for me to take communion today in a way that would cause God to want to end my life earlier than what I had planned? All right. So let me just say that since it was possible in Corinth 2,000 years ago, it is not impossible in Wichita Falls today. But keep in mind that they had wandered a long ways from the truth. 
And we're not talking about a simple sin. We're not talking about a stray thought or an unkind word. We're not talking about the fact that maybe someone hurt your feelings and and you can't get over being upset with them. At Corinth, they were destroying God's church from the inside out. And God took, took a serious approach with a serious correction to that. So as we close out today, we're going to pray. Uh, and then after I pray, we're going to sing another song in worship. And, and this song, guys, this song every week is the song where we examine ourselves. Um, so Christian, you know what you need to be doing during this time. And when you feel like you're ready for communion today, you feel like your heart is in the right place, we have elements here at two places in the front, and there's a table in the back as well. Uh, Go and get one of those packages of the element and just take it back with you to your chair and hold on to it because Cody will come up here at the conclusion of the song, and he will lead us all together in unity as the body of Christ. We will celebrate what, what Christ has done for us for the elements. And... And if you're here this morning and and Christ is not your testimony yet, uh, we're glad you're here. We want you to see and observe and hear what it is that we're celebrating, um, this proclamation of the gospel. But I want you to think about my opening illustration where I was talking about the word planet and and how the ancient people watched the skies and they saw the the movements of the planet and and the movements of the stars as they rotated from the summer stars to the winter stars. They noticed one very particular thing. They saw that while all of the stars moved somewhere, including those weird wandering ones that appeared and disappeared, there was one star in the north and the entire cosmos danced around that one star. And so while all of the stars moved, there was one star, there was one thing, there was one compass point that they could depend on to make sure that they moved in the right direction and that they got to where they were supposed to be going. And that, of course, we know is the North Star. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. There are lots of claims out there of ways to heaven. There are lots of ways that claim spirituality in a way to awaken what what needs to be awakened inside of you, that part that is not alive without Christ. But Jesus said, I am the way. There is just one compass point. There's just one path towards salvation. And as we sing this song, I want you to think about this. And if you have any questions, I want you to see Cody or Ryan or Davis or myself or, or the person who invited you this morning if you're here with someone who asked you to come and, and to be at this service. And, and I would just say, ask those questions this morning. It'll be a casual conversation. It may be the beginning of a series of casual conversations in your life. Um, but ask these questions before you leave while they're fresh on your heart and your mind. Let's let's pray together.